Hey everyone, we've got another unusual and entertaining episode of Outdoors with me, Lawrence Gunther, in store for you guys today. We start with Lily sharing some somewhat disturbing news about an invasive species that's moving its way up the uh, eastern seaboard of North America. Lily and I learn about walking fish and what it takes for creatures to adjust to a quickly changing environment. I have some more feedback on the all-terrain cane and a reflection to share about reconciliation and reclaiming traditional ways of life. So put your feet up, take a break, and be prepared to be entertained and informed. Come on, Lewis. Did you know? Hey, Lily. Hi. Lily, I understand spiders are the topic of the day again. Uh, we had a, a spider discussion not that long ago about how spiders listen through their webs. Oh, God, I hated that. <laughs> but, I, you, but you're not afraid of spiders. Nah, not really. No, I mean, everyone doesn't want a spider crawling on them and waking up with a spider on their face or anything like that. But uh, wh- what did you find out for us today about spiders? Oh, my God. Scientists at the University of Georgia announced that a new spider... So fun. The Joro spider, which arrived in the southeastern U.S. in 2013, will eventually spread up and down the east coast. Wow. So I'm thinking that if it's going to spread that far north, it's probably safe to assume that it's also going to come to Canada. Oh. So fun. Or, you know, at least the more southern areas of Canada. Yeah. Uh, The venomous spider can grow to the size of an adult's palm. Wow. Yeah. However, <laughs> the invasion of this arachnid species might not be that bad. I so doubt that is true. I feel like it can't be good. Can you describe the spider? They're, they're, they're freaking big, okay? Yeah. The female can have a leg span of three to four inches. Wow. That's like eight to ten centimeters. I don't know, I like that. Yeah. What about the color? It's thorax yeah is that's the right word for it yeah um is kind of like striped yellow and pale powder blue cute yeah yeah like the the colors of the swedish flag (laughs) um yeah and their legs are long they're long black legs with like yellow splotches on them yeah and i think it could have a red underbelly these things honestly you know what when they're when something's that colorful in nature it means don't touch it that's, oh yeah that's just that, what that's it the is. first warning is uh, hey see me don't come near me yeah. yeah they don't need to hide do they oh god oh man don't love that lily you say they're venomous but uh, do we have anything to worry about so the scientists new study show that these spiders aren't out competing other spiders as they spread so in fact they're not aggressive um the okay. researchers compared more than four 450 spider responses to a brief and harmless disturbance across 10 different species. In the study, the researchers used turkey basters to blow two rapid puffs of air on the spiders. Yeah, that's always fun. Um, They tested 30 different types of spiders, and most species froze in response to the disturbance for an average of 90 seconds. But Joros stayed frozen for more than an hour. Wow really like to just you know, pretend they're dead don't they yeah researchers believe joro spiders are really just kind of like scaredy cats so some cold comfort for the up to 1.2 billion of the world's population who suffer from arachnophobia uh, 1.2 billion uh, that includes all australians 
Oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> and there's plentiful supply of... Nasty bugs. Nasty spiders and snakes. So, Lily, what does this have to do with their taking over the uh, east coast of North America? I mean, if they're that afraid, uh, is that going to happen? Ah, well, researchers think that the Joro spiders' timidness may help from their, them conserve energy amidst an urban environment rich in stimuli. Okay. Yeah. Scientists think Joro's rap- rapid spread must be because of their incredible reproductive potential, so they're simply outbreeding everybody else. Oh. It's not because they're displaying native spiders or di- kicking them out of yeah. their own webs, you know? Yeah. Should we be afraid? So, yeah, they're, they're venomous. But, you know, scientists said they're not a threat to humans or pets. Mm-hmm. Despite the spider's very large size, its fangs are quite small, and their defensive bites most likely wouldn't even break the skin. Really? Yeah, and despite being an invasive species, they may even be beneficial. So that's not an invasive species. That is a non-native species. The spiders eat insects such as stink bugs, which cause crop damage and swarm in homes. They can help control insects without the use of pesticides. It sounds like we don't have a lot to worry about other than maybe uh, tripping over one of these big buggers in the middle of the night. Yeah, yeah, no. So, <laughs> oh, God. That's Oopsie. awful. <laughs> So there's really, yeah, there's no reason to go around actively squishing them. No. Uh, Humans are at the root of their invasion, so you can't blame the Joro spider. Thanks, Lily. Outdoor Adventures. Lily and I had the opportunity to sit down with Dr. Emily Standen from the Faculty of Science at the University of Ottawa. Emily has been researching walking fish and plasticity for over 20 years. Here's our conversation with Dr. Standen. Today I'm giving an overview of the walking fish story and then a little bit about what it tells us about evolution. Some of it is things that people would agree upon and other things people have different opinions on. And one of my major motivations for thinking about uh, fish in particular and the fin to limb transition or how vertebrates got onto land was because when I was doing my PhD, I was in a lab and my, one of my committee members was Ferris Jenkins, and they had just come back from the Canadian Arctic with a bunch of casts of fossils they dug up, and within those were Tiktaalik. And Tiktaalik is a very cool fossil of a fish-like thing that looked like it probably spent a lot of time out of water. And people were really excited about it, and I sort of drank the Kool-Aid. What does it mean to be a fish? What does it mean to have the ability to move onto land if you are a fish, and then what's the impact of that on evolution? So just imagine this environment being pretty nasty. Not a lot of resources left, lots of competition, huge amounts of predation, where at the same time, if you go out of the water, up onto land, it's exactly the opposite. Plants had just started moving out of water onto land, so there was different bushy, mossy things that were growing, fern-like things. There were also invertebrates on land, so giant millipedes and things like that. And so if you were a fish that could manage to come out of water for a short period of time, you had a huge advantage. So there is the adaptive pressure. There's lots of fish breathe air that don't ever come out of water. It's because the water is so hypoxic or disgusting that they come up to the surface to gulp air, and that's how they survive. So there is this underlying assumption these animals were breathing air already. So this is evolution in a nutshell, right? That you've got all these other reasons why you've evolved traits, and then they allow you access to some new environment. 
and it's great. Half the vertebrates on the planet are fish. Fish are important. People don't think of fish because they're always underwater, but there's you know, over 36,000 species of fish. We looked at the biomechanics of these things. How do they swim? How do they walk? They use their fins in different ways. So when they're swimming, but they keep their bodies really straight and they move their fins together, out and then in, out and in. And nothing moves very much and their head doesn't go up and down at all. It just stays steady. When they walk, they bend their body a huge amount. Their head goes up and down a lot. And they move a lot. So it's a very, very different gait. And this is quite cool because if an animal has the capacity to do a very different gait, just in a novel environment, then you have the ability instantly to change the forces the animal experiences. And that leads to changes in anatomy, muscle development, and all of those things. The take home message there is these guys are flexible. They can do lots of different things. And it's super interesting that they have the neural control to be able to do that. You can get any polypterus at the pet store and take it home and put it on your desk and it will walk effectively. But on the long term, if you take that fish and you put half of them on land and you put half of them in water and then look at, after a period of time in those two different environments, what happens to their behavior and to their anatomy, you start to understand a little bit about how the use of their bodies changes in the different environments. And this is getting at plasticity, the plastic response of the biological organism. There's a genotype and a phenotype. The genotype is what you were given by your parents. It's your DNA, and it's, it's all the nooks and crannies of your DNA. The phenotype, your phenotype, is what you actually express based on that genotype. So it's your physical, your physiological, your behavioral person that's the result of the genotype. So your genotype is fixed, but the thing that's interesting about the phenotype is it's plastic, and what we mean by that is, depending on the environment you're in, you will change your phenotype. Any one genotype can have multiple phenotypes. The easy way to think about this is, if you sit on the couch for your whole life, you're gonna have one body type. If you get up and go to the gym, that same person gets up and goes to the gym, you change your shape. You know, you get muscles, you can maybe get huge, so that's phenotypic plasticity that allows one person to change their body shape. Their genome isn't changing, it stays constant, but how it's expressed changes. And so phenotypic plasticity is all the rage because it happens all over the place, but no one knows exactly how it factors into evolution. Some people say that there's something called genetic assimilation. So if you think about having a range of environments an animal could possibly live in. And so our example is water and land. Then the idea that is very controversial, guys, if there is selection, natural selection, only in the new environment, all the animals are gonna be selected for the trait that's beneficial in that new environment. Keep going. Okay, okay. Well, I'm gonna give you an example now, a fishy example, so you'll like it. Yeah. And these are stickleback. They're little tiny fishes that live on the west coast all over the place. They, they actually diversify really quick. So there's populations in lakes, there's populations in the ocean, and each population has a different way of being. 
and morphologically they're very different. The limnetic ones have this long skinny mouth with a tiny mouth at the end. The benthic ones have this big chomping jaw with a very round head, lots of muscles. These are very closely related. They're different sort of subspecies. And what this, these guys in this paper did, which was really elegant, is they took a group of benthic animals, so they were all big jawed, chompy chompy, and they fed half of them hard food, and they fed half of them soft food, like you would find up in the limnetic zone. And what happened as those animals developed was that the ones eating hard food looked like the benthic group that they had come from. The ones eating limnetic food looked like limnetic fish. So just a change in what they ate changed their morphology of their mouth. That's awesome phenotypic plasticity. So super cool, right? You've got the same genome. Just by feeding them different things, you get a very different morphology coming out. That's phenotypic plasticity. They can alter their, their physical shape then to fit their environment. Yeah, not just their environment, but the, the prey they're pursuing. Yeah, yeah. So you can think of prey as environment in a way, because yeah. that's like, that's one of the things they have to deal with. So yeah, so they, and it's, it's all to do with, if it's crunchy, they need their muscles develop bigger, their bones develop thicker, and they look like the benthic morph of the fish. Now, how is this controversial? What's controversial is nothing has changed in the genome of these animals. So the, this isn't controversial. The fact that plasticity exists, absolutely it exists. Nobody's denying that. What's hard is when people say yes and plasticity, when it creates these new traits, that trait then gets fixed into the genome. And there's nothing that tells us how that, that plastic trait, which is just a, a plastic phenotype expression, gets locked into the genotype. That's the controversy, is how the heck does it get locked into the genotype so it can be passed on to the offspring as a fixed trait? Because once you fix that trait, you can't go back to the other shape again. They can? In the plastic world, yes, animals can. But if we're saying that plasticity leads to speciation, right. then they can't. And so that's where people get up in arms. How is this happening? What's going on here? Because one generation after another after another just keep locking themselves into these new configurations. Yeah, so the idea is that if, if that environment is pushed to one extreme and stays there for long enough, that they'll just keep plastically expressing that one trait and eventually that trait will fix into the genome and then if the environment flips back, they won't be able to go back. That life came out of the sea and came up on land. Mm -hmm. But I understand now that they say maybe some of that life went back into the sea. Oh, definitely. The fish crawled out onto land and then they evolved for many, many millions of years. Evolution happened, you've got all sorts of quadrupedal animals developing, things that are bear-like, things that are wolf-like, and some of those things lived on the side of lakes and oceans, and they started going back into the water to fish and to hunt, and they adaptive selection selected for critters that were highly effective in that niche, and that slowly selected for our marine mammals. And you, you can see this in holdovers in their skeletons. So if you look at whales, many whales, they've got pelvic bones. 
hanging out, not attached to their spine, not attached to anything, no limbs, no fins associated. They're just two little bones in the middle of their abdomen doing nothing. And that's the holdover of when they used to be quadrupeds on land running around. So yeah, so evolution's going in all directions all time. And it, and it totally is the result of whatever the most effective solution is for the animal at the time. And so it's really hard. Like if you've got an evolutionary change that's in one direction, let's assume right now it's global warming. The planet is warming, 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 warming. That's a pretty consistent direction one way. So the selective pressure is gonna be one direction, which is, can you handle heat? You're gonna be selected for based on traits that allow you to handle hotter temperatures. But now imagine for a minute, if you have an environment that's stochastic, and that means just all over the place. So for 20 years, it's gonna get hotter, and then for three years, it's gonna be cold again, and then it's gonna be hot again, and zigzags back and forth. The selective pressure there is really hard to tell what it is because for short periods of time, it's gonna be one way or another way. So it's really, it's difficult to predict there what are the selective pressures acting on that population. And it's why the patterns we see in the fossil record are big patterns. Because we, we have A, very limited data because we have not found every animal that ever existed and we only see things over millions of years time. So talk about fish hatcheries and what this means to what you're talking about in terms of plasticity. If we keep moving the specimens around and mixing it up, interfering with it. And sometimes that interference provides the population with an advantage and stability because variation is added to the population and that variation is helpful for oncoming environmental changes that they need to deal with. And sometimes adding that into the mix is deleterious because you've weakened something that's evolved well for a system. And one of the reasons why invasive species are so terrible, like invasive species are happening all of the time. All of the time things are being moved from one place to another. A lot of the time those things can't handle it, right? Like Canada's, we're pretty, we've been pretty safe because a lot of stuff that gets brought up from the tropics just gets snuffed out the first winter. If you end up in a, in a situation where there is an animal that can handle the new environment, usually it's catastrophic because if it can handle the environment, it can probably outcompete because it hasn't ever had to compete with these other creatures in this ecosystem. And so it just dominates and takes over until something in that ecosystem evolves to prey on that thing and then that animal is at a huge advantage because if you can eat this invasive species that is everywhere you've got unlimited resources for a time i think about how long it took the fishes in the great lakes to start to predate on roundhead goats some some started much earlier and others <laughs> came to the you know, to the table much later. Yet they were there, the, whole, the gobies were there. Tremendous numbers, right away. But it doesn't happen overnight. Evolution doesn't happen in silos, right? That in, evolution happens as an ecosystem. So when one animal evolves a new trait that gives it an advantage, another animal evolves a trait that takes away its advantage. You know, like predator-prey, 
The predator gets really fast. The prey gets better at hiding. Anytime you've got an animal that's living on an interface between two environments, so okay. land, water, things that hunt in the intertidal zone. Polar bears. So polar bears are highly aquatic bears. They yeah. swim for miles and miles and miles. The ice is melting. It's getting too warm. They're losing their advantage for hunting because they hunt on the pack ice. The pack ice is no longer there. There is a selective pressure for bears that can catch fish by swimming. So if there are populations of bears that are really good at swimming, they're going to survive. And you put enough time on that selective pressure, you could get something like a, a polar bear becoming another truly aquatic mammal. Do you think there are some applications to, to climate change? Well, I think plasticity is very interesting to think about in the context of climate change. And this is for the reason I said earlier, which is if an organism is able to adjust its, its behavior, its physiology, its morphology in a way that benefits it at warmer temperatures, they're going to be okay. Animals that can't are going to go extinct. And so if climate change is small enough or slow enough that adaptive selection can select for existing traits that help those animals, those populations continue, you're going to see those populations continuing. Animals that, that have, have traits that can be selected for, being selected for, and I don't know if you call it speciation, if it's, if it's just one animal changing its, its genetic makeup, but yes, you start to get into the semantics of what is extinction. If a population of animals persists hereditarily, they move forward, but the genetic makeup of that group changes significantly. Is that a new species, and did the old group go extinct? What plasticity gives you is a little bit of an ace in your pocket in that for right now on this day that it is really hot I have these tricks that I can use to survive and persist. Now we still come to that problem of how does that trait that's allowing me to survive and persist get passed on to my offspring. You can stay in that plastic realm where the offspring are gonna also have that range of plasticity that helps them stay there. If climate change keeps on trucking and it gets hotter and hotter and hotter, your plasticity has to go with it if it's gonna to continue to work. What could be handy is if your baseline trait fixes higher on that temperature scale. It's like when we dig up fossils in Antarctica of dinosaurs, it was warm enough at some point for dinosaurs to be there. That was a fun discussion, guys. What a nice treat to have just us. Outdoor tips and tech. Six degrees on your left, 122 meters. Two, south, southeast, southeast. Last Tuesday, our charity, Bluefish Canada, was helping out the Director of Environment at the Mohawk of Aquasasne First Nations community with a fishing event that was taking place on the north shore of the St. Lawrence River. We brought the rods, the hooks, the floats, the worms, and some help 
to make sure everyone had a good time fishing. There was about a dozen youth ranging in age from 6 to 16 and about 6 adults. The point of land we were using was reinforced with large rocks. The top of the point was pretty easy going. It was all grass. But once you got to the rocks and climbing up and down those boulders, that was a bit of a challenge. You didn't just step down those things lightly. They were big steps. I had to climb up and down those rocks quite a bit to help untangle lines, unhook fish, put worms on hooks. I was up and down like a jackrabbit. I found using that all-terrain cane through the grass worked just fine. The big giant ball, it's about the size of a large orange, would just coast easily over the grass. I didn't have to lift the stick. It never got stuck once. And when I came to the rocks, it found the edge of the rocks just fine. The strength of the shaft of the white cane was plenty sufficient to give me a little bit of support climbing up and down the rocks. The shaft also extends so it can get quite long. And that's helpful when you're going down the rocks. It means I just have to lean over a little bit less as I'm looking for how deep that next step is going to have to be. My guide dog, Lewis, he just wasn't the right tool for the job that day. So I was happy to have the altering cane along with me. I'm happy to say that it's earned a place under the back seat of my Ram 2500, along with my floating dock cane, my wooden hiking pole, and my old beat up white cane that I use for hooking up trailers to the back of the truck and poking the odd chunk of wood in the fire pit. I feel honored every time I get to go fishing with some First Nations or Inuit fishers. The fact is the fish in the St. Lawrence River haven't been safe to eat for about 40 years. An entire generation of Mohawk fishers lost their connection to the river because they were told not to eat the fish. Things have improved the communities are reestablishing their connection to nature through fishing, and it starts with the youth. My role uh, and that of the charities is to help First Nations people learn how to use some of the newer technologies that have come along in fishing over the last 30, 40 years, but I'm still very much learning about the circle of life. It comes down to one health. If we want to be healthy, we've got to make sure nature is healthy too. Follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit me at lawrencegunther.com to keep up to date on my blogs and videos. Subscribe to get the latest episodes of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther by visiting your favorite podcast provider. And please take some time to rank us and give us some comments. Send me your feedback, suggestions, and questions on email at feedback at ami.ca or on Twitter at AMIAudio. I want to thank Nazreen Abdel-Majid, the manager of AMI-audio, Zandi Frank. Hi, I'm Stephen Scott. Join me every day for Double Tap. It's a show where we occasionally talk about technology for blind and partially sighted people. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts.